Hi, this is Michael Slate. As I was preparing this week's show, people in the U.S. got a jolt. A draft Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade was leaked out to the press. Now, there have been protests erupting all over the U.S. This battle is definitely not over, and we will be saying a lot more about it in the coming weeks. But we had a chance to talk with Skylar Solomon, a leader of Rise Up for Abortion Rights LA, at an action in Los Angeles. So here are her comments. Rise Up for Abortion Rights is calling on all people to take action today in response of the leaked draft of the Supreme Court decision that would move to overturn Roe versus Wade. We are calling on all people to get out into the streets, wherever they are, uh, either at their, their city hall or, or local courthouse, to, to sound the alarm about the abortion rights emergency and to call people into the streets because it is not too late to fight this. The people do have the power to stop the Supreme Court from overturning Roe versus Wade. Your silence on this matter is compliance on, for, you know, on, the, on behalf of the oppressor. And it is not too late. This is only a draft. The official decision has not yet been published, which means this is not yet law. And the Supreme Court is a highly politicized system that cares about their legitimacy. And if the 80% of the population who wants to see abortion remains safe and legal, rises up, unifies in mass sustained protest, not just today, but every day moving forward. We do have the power to compel them to do right by the majority of Americans that want to see this, this Roe versus Wade stay, uh, stay law. And, and you know, they, they can be compelled to do what's right because it will threaten their legitimacy and therefore threaten you know, democracy as a whole. We are also calling on mass walkouts. So students, you know, CEOs, employees, whoever you are, walk out of work, walk out of class on Thursday and, and go to a rallying point, city hall, courthouse, and protest. We need to fill the streets on Thursday. And then you can also take part in our National Week of Action, which will be May 8th through the 14th. They can learn about that on Rise Up the number four, abortionrights.org. And this is a week of bold and creative actions to spread the word about the abortion rights emergency and call people into the streets because this will all be culminating in another nationwide mass protest on May 14th. When I saw this leaked memo, I saw this as an opportunity for the people to rise up before it is too late to stop this from happening. We've been given an opportunity with this leap to unify and beat back these attacks together because this is not just an assault on abortion rights. The decision that was leaked hinted at the Supreme Court case that legalized gay marriage and and it opens a door to start rolling back that protection, to start rolling back uh, the Supreme Court case that guaranteed the right to interracial marriage and so much more. The conservative party, the GOP, has already indicated that they want to move forward with a national ban on a fetal personhood bill, which would, from the moment of conception, give more rights to a cluster of cells than the person that it resides inside of. And so if you do not want to accept a world and a country that is hurtling backwards, if you want to see all people uh, seen as equals, then you need to stand up and you need to get out into the streets. If you're unable to get out into the streets, uh, then 
we invite you to to visit rise the rise up the number four abortionrights.org to to view our open letter for unified action on May 14th. Send it out to any of your organizations, your church groups, you know the, that you support, and and call people to action. Help us unify as a country for mass sustained protest. And please make a donation if you can, so that we can sustain this important work that we're doing in rallying the people to, to rise up. And then, of course, uh, another way that you can spread the word is to wear green. Green is the universal symbol of the fight to protect abortion rights. It was started in Argentina and spread throughout Colombia and Mexico, where they went out in their millions wearing green, and they won the right to abortion. And we have been invited by those organizers to take up the green wave here in America, as well as across the globe. So wear green and and you know share with people what that means and that that you support the right for abortion and show what side that you are on. That was Skylar Solomon from Rise Up for Abortion Rights. Now here's this week's show. This is the Michael Slate Show. As you know now, I'm Michael Slate. Yeah, that's right. I'm Michael Slate. There you go. I remember April 29th. For some reason, I remember... <laughs> Somehow it had something to do with me ending up out here in L.A. for a while. And I had never moved, I think. That's actually one of the things that was going on. And it's the anniversary of the Los Angeles Rebellion. That's exactly why I was out here. One of the most important things that was going on at the time. And still, to this day, people have got to think about what was the importance of the L.A. Rebellion. To actually understand that it was something that was really changed. Just the whole look of what was going on changed the way that people looked at LA, the US, and the way they, you know, they looked at the world. You know, there was a whole big thing. And this thing actually went out and did a tremendous amount in terms of going out and reaching out to people, not only in the, you know, people who were, you know, basically all over yes, all over LA, all over the US, but also people in other parts of the world, many parts of the world. I remember being Afri- being in South Africa at a certain point and people coming up to me in, 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 in the far, in the far ends of South Africa coming to me and said, I remember, I remember the LA rebellion, you know, and we need one of them. And of course they were having rebellions and they were getting there. But uh, don't ever forget what has been done, what could be done and what needs to be done. All right. And we won't have time today to do a full remembrance of this earth shaking event. This was the largest urban rebellion in U.S. history, but we will be talking about it a lot on next week's show. All right. So stay tuned for that one. So at the back end of the show, we're going to be talking with two of the people from the play T, and it's a. I got to tell you, it was a. It's a very good play. It's something that really made a dent in me. So, <laughs> I I really 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 liked it. I've seen it a couple times now. And just opening the show up, we're going to be talking about May Day, 2022. The Revcoms are having marches in Los Angeles and New York under the slogans, "No U.S. NATO war with Russia, no World War III." Get that, okay? Get that and. Sp- just put it in your head, all right? No U.S.-NATO war with Russia. No World War III. Never forget that. Never never forget the, the, what it means if that's... People don't pay attention to that. It's big time. It's big time horror, okay? It's the, it's the system, not humanity, that needs to become extinct. Again, never forget that. It is the system, not humanity, that needs to become extinct, all right? So keep that in mind. And we won't, we don't accept, we do not accept their, fu- their future. We don't accept the system's future. It's time to get organized for a real revolution. So first, we're going to hear, we're going to hear Andy Z and Raymond Lada from the RNL show 
or uh, Revolution Nothing Less show on YouTube. And uh, they'll be talking about the war in, in Ukraine and the very real danger of World War III and why people need to accept, need to accept, yeah, I'm sorry, and why people need to act. Um, and after that, we'll be talking with Noche Diaz, national spokesperson for the Revolution Club, on what people are facing and why people need to take a stand. Remember that, folks. People need to take a stand. And there's reasons, real reasons, for why you've got to get up out of it and you need to take a stand. All right? So let's hear uh, Andy Z and Raymond Lada now. That was the late, great reggae musician Peter Tosh in his song, We Don't Want No Nuclear War. He sang, looking for World War III, you gotta set me free, free from the chains and this here misery. With nuclear war, we won't get far. We don't want no nuclear war. So with that as an introduction, we want to get into the first of the May 1st slogans, No U.S. NATO War with Russia. No World War III. It's this system, not humanity, that needs to become extinct. And to dig into why people should come out on May 1st and show their unity with that slogan, I'm going to be speaking with Raymond Lotta, my comrade and colleague in Revolution and at Revolution Books in New York City, where Raymond is tonight. Welcome, Raymond Lotta. Well, thanks, Andy. It's always great to be with you. All right, good. So, um, likewise... We're going to draw from and speak to a very important article from Bob Avakian on our website, Revcom.us, titled Ukraine. World War III is the real danger, not a repeat of World War II, as well as a companion piece titled World War III and Dangerous Idiocy. Speaking to what needs to be done and the interests of humanity, Bob Avakian says in the last section of World War III is the real danger, quote, it would be, of course be in the interests of the masses of people everywhere for the actions of the imperialists on both sides of this war to be halted right away. But the reality is that we, the masses of people in the countries involved and in the world as a whole, do not and cannot determine in direct and immediate terms what the different governments will do, end quote. He goes on to say that would require a revolution to overthrow the system. Then he goes on to say, quote, what we can do and need to do now while these imperialists are still in power is speak and act in opposition to their military aggression on all sides with the aim of contributing in that way to a situation where they feel compelled to pull back from such aggression, end quote. He goes on to point out that this is what happened with the Vietnam War where the anti-war movement was a significant factor leading to U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam. So with that as background, Raymond, uh, as a starting point in this piece, 
Bob Avakian speaks to how the first casualty of war is truth, and he slams into the role of the U.S. as holding the record for invasions, coups, and other violent interference in other countries. And we've exposed a lot of that here on, Revcom, on, on the RNL show and on Revcom.us. But I just want to interject that the former governor of California, Jerry Brown, has an article this week in the New York Review of Books that begins with this startling statistic. In the 20 years of U.S.-led war on terror since September 11, 2001, U.S. attacks and these wars have killed more than nine. 100,000 people and displaced at least 38 million. So who are they to talk about war crimes? Bob Vagan goes on to speak to the viewpoints trumpeted by the media and taken up by all too many people, including people who should know better, that the Russian ruler Putin is like Hitler. And quote, if we don't stop him now in Ukraine, he will soon be invading other countries, including NATO countries. And the line, quote, we cannot fear, we cannot let fear of World War II keep us from doing what is necessary to defeat Putin in Ukraine and put a stop to his aggression. Or we will just give in to him every time he makes another aggressive move or issues an aggressive threat. Look, people should read the article to see how Bob Avakian answers these arguments, but a big part of his answer is to go to the reality. So, Raymond, could you speak to the reality of the strategic interests of each side in this inter-imperialist conflict? Yeah. You know, the way this is portrayed in the media and by the U.S. rulers is that this conflict began on February 24th, 2022, when Putin, this madman, uh, invaded, um, invaded the Ukraine. This was an act of unprovoked aggression, as it's described. But actually, there's a whole history behind this. You know, over the last 30 years since the collapse of the former Soviet Union, the United States and its military alliance, NATO, that's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which the U.S. Uh, founded and which the U.S. dominates, that military alliance has sought to absorb countries of Eastern Europe that were former parts of the old Soviet bloc to bring them into this alliance and to put more pressure on Russia, to prevent Russia from emerging as a contender for world power and influence, a contender and a challenger to the U.S.'s dominant position in the world imperialist order of which the United States is the main beneficiary. And between 1999 and 2004, 10 countries were brought into the NATO alliance, which are close to or directly border Russia. And Russia has been moving and acting to prevent this encirclement and at the same time to reassert its strength, its influence in the world, and to establish a rival pole of power uh, in Europe, Central Asia and North uh, and in the Middle East. So you see this contention between two imperialist powers, two empires of exploitation and plunder. And Ukraine now is the key, key prize in this contest between these two imperialist 
powers. Uh, on the one hand, the U.S. will complete its encirclement uh, of Russia on the east by gaining influence and control in Ukraine, and it has done uh, so through uh, efforts to back different forces. It's been sending economic assistance, and Russia, in turn, is moving to reabsorb Ukraine, to absorb it into its imperialist um, bloc in order to strengthen its hand in the world. And right now, this contest is a proxy war between the United States and Russia. The United States is sending arms. It's giving intelligence. It's imposing sanctions on Russia to cripple the Russian economy. And Russia, in turn, is directly inside. A proxy war is a war between two states, but they are not directly fighting each other. In this case, the Russians are invading Ukraine. It's a savage invasion. And the United States is fighting Russia through Ukraine. And it's not about democracy in the Ukraine or the well-being and welfare of the Ukrainian people. They are cannon fodder in the U.S. efforts to encircle Russia. And right now, this is getting ever more dangerous because the suggestions coming from Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, to establish a no-fly zone, that would mean that if U.S. If U.S. forces were hit, then that would escalate. If Russia moves in and escalates and threatens this regime in toto, the U.S. is now moving in a position where it will directly get involved. So this is an extremely dangerous situation, and it's one which the people of the world have no interest in being part of or being drawn into as supporters and backers and foot soldiers and, yes, cannon fodder for these two imperialist powers. Well, I think that last point, uh, you know, in terms of what's actually happening in Ukraine now and where it could go and what's being advocated is very important. We, we do know right now that, that the this heavy armament that the NATO bloc, the U.S., is putting into uh, uh, Ukraine is having an effect. In fact, there's reports, we don't know how true they are, of, of explosions within Russia now. There, uh, there is, um, uh, uh, most dangerously, there is a statement from the U.S. Secretary of Defense that a strategic objective of the U.S. is to weaken the Russian military overall, not just expel them from Ukraine, but to weaken the Russian military. Uh, this is actually an attempt to protract the war, to try to bleed Russia. And at the same time, the Russian defense minister has said, well, you do all this, we're, and you keep bringing these heavy weapons in, including very sophisticated drones, and we are going to consider, if we, we feel threatened enough, to use tactical nuclear weapons. 
So uh, there's a question of design and there's also a question of of accelerated accident where, as you pointed out, one or the other side could mistakenly hit uh, a strategic uh, uh, asset of the others, including uh, people. And um, and, you know, even the U.S. putting an ambassador into Kiev is uh, it could potentially be a flashpoint. So, look, we, we don't have all night on this. Uh, so but I did want you to ask you about the importance of us saying you no U.S. NATO war with Russia, no World War Three. And why this isn't just a nice stand to take, but actually has some real immediacy uh, in the world today. This is an exceedingly dangerous situation. Andy, you just pointed to the fact that uh, this is rapidly escalating. It's not just the increasing military aid that the United States is giving, but more intelligence support, training. And the fact is that the danger of all out direct confrontation between the U.S. and Russia is growing and growing exceedingly fast. And the danger here is not just the confrontation becomes direct now instead of a proxy war. It's a direct contest between Russia and the United States. But the fact remains, and it is one that cannot be uh, overemphasized, that these two imperialist powers, these two empires of exploitation between the two of them own and control 90 percent of the nuclear warheads in the world. And 2,000 of those nuclear weapons are on high operational alert that can be deployed in battle zones of this war and in the zones in which it could rapidly spread. And we are talking about the potential use of first tactical nuclear weapons, which are defined as low yield nuclear weapons. And that's kind of an oxymoron. Low yield doesn't mean, uh, you know, not destructive. And these weapons bring with them extraordinary damage to human life, to the environment. And that use of tactical nuclear weapons, which the Russians said are on the table, and let's not forget that the United States was the first and the only country to use nuclear weapons and has said that those nuclear weapons are an integral part of its military arsenal. Well, those tactical weapons, nuclear weapons, with all the destruction they wreak, can also become part of an escalatory logic towards the use of strategic nuclear weapons, which pose an existential threat to humanity and to this planet. That's how serious this is. And that's the urgency of this, that we have to act to stop this war, this conflict. Okay, Raymond, we, we're going to have to wrap up. I just want to conclude with uh, two things. That, In terms of this point on the danger of this escalated into a nuclear war is why we say it's this system not humanity that needs to become extinct as one of the key slogans of May 1st. And to realize that we'll take uh, the preparations today for making an actual revolution in this country uh, and and to be working towards that while we are acting on exactly uh, what you've just said. And I want to just conclude 
this uh, segment on uh, the slogans for May 1st with this from the article World War Three and Dangerous Idiocy. Baba Vicky concludes that article with this, quote, All this emphasizes why it is vitally important for the masses of people in this country and other countries aligned with it, as well as in Russia, for people everywhere to finally and fully wake up now and recognize the real and profoundly heavy stakes involved and act in accordance with our actual interests, the interests of all of humanity, demanding that this war in Ukraine and the involvement direct and indirect of the imperialists on both sides of this war be stopped before it not only causes greater suffering for the people of Ukraine, but possibly escalates into a far more terrible conflict, which causes massive destruction and death on a whole other level, and even possibly poses a threat to the very existence of humanity itself, end quote. So, Raymond, good night. Thank you for being here, and uh, we'll see you soon. Great. Thank you. This is the Michael Slate Show, and uh, that was Andy Z and Raymond Lotta from the RNL Show, which you can check out on the YouTube channel, The Revcoms. All right? Don't forget that. The YouTube channel, The Revcoms. Blow your mind when you, when you hear some of this stuff, right? And we got to blow your mind, too, because there's a lot that's going on that needs to be going on that needs to be spoken to, and you need to be, you need to be taking stuff up around. Before we start our conversation with Noche Diaz, I want to make an announcement. Rise Up for Abortion Rights has announced a national week of action, May 8th to May 14th, all right? May 8th to May 14th, a national week of action called by uh, Rise Up for Abortion Rights, all right? And we refuse to let the Supreme Court take away abortion rights. It will end with with nationwide protests May 14th. It's going to end with nationwide protests May 14th. So write that down, May 14th, nationwide protests, all right? For more information, Go to riseupforabortionrights.org. Riseupforabortionrights.org. O-R-G, all right? Spelled with the number four, okay? Now, uh, I'd like to welcome to the show Noche Diaz. Noche is the national spokesperson for the Revolution Club. Noche, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, you too, man. We're going to jump into this because I know you got a lot to say. What are your thoughts on the L.A. Rebellion. All right, we really got to get into this. It's, it's really important for people to understand that this wasn't just, you know, everything that the system has, has tried to paint it um, in the aftermath. But when you were there, when it was happening, and when you studied this and you see what happens and you talk to people that were there, you understand the depth of what it is. And I'd like to hear, I know you have a lot to say about this. So let's talk about that. Uh, yeah, Michael, um, first of all, happy anniversary, happy 30th anniversary. Um, this was uh, 30 years ago. People in this city uh, really shook up this whole country in a very powerful and beautiful rebellion. Um, and one of the things that I'm thinking about uh, on this day is uh, I've been talking to some youth in high schools, and um, it struck me that a lot of people don't even know this rebellion happened um, 30 years ago, even you know, people, young people in this city. And I think one of the things that, um, you know, makes me think about is, you know, the perspective that comes from seeing that 30 years ago, people saw this video of Rodney King being brutally beaten down, having his face beaten in, his bones broken. They saw all this on camera 
and this was a novelty at the time because people, many people who were victims of this kind of brutality knew it went on, but a lot of people in society tried to pretend like it wasn't real. And here, finally, they caught it on camera. And in a sham trial, these cops were let loose, not guilty. And people erupted into rebellion in a very, you know, beautiful struggle. But here we are 30 years later, and the novelty of a video showing the police carrying out brutality is one off. Today, we see it all the damn time, including recently with Patrick Viola, who was, had his, who was on the ground face down while the cops put a, pulled a gun to the back of his head and literally blew, the, blew his brains out on camera. This is just two years after the video of George Floyd with, you know, police you know, knee on his, on, his, on, the, on his back killed and erupted into another rebellion around the country. 30 years, and this system cannot do without its enforcers acting like murderous, brutal pigs. But we also saw 30 years ago the fact that the people who are brutalized this way, when they stand up, in this way, a lot of the stuff that day to day grinds people up and keeps them accepting the way things are kind of evaporates. A lot of the division that the system works to create amongst different people, most black people, Latinos, even amongst, you know, oppressed nationalities and white people. A lot of that began to peel away as people actually stood up together against this injustice and inspired the world, including the people on the bottom of society who are routinely denounced as thugs and criminals and caught up in no good. Many people put this aside, and, you know, uh, Bob Avakian spoke powerfully about the LA Rebellion and how the youth, even who were caught up in some, you know, some bad before the rebellion, they put a lot of that aside and worked real hard to pull off these unity picnics amongst the different gangs and sets. And this showed and gave a taste of what it was like when people stand up against oppression. But it also shows that that struggle is going to have to go a lot further than just rebellions. It's going to have to go all the way to a revolution to deal with a system that cannot do without this oppression so that humanity can do without this system. And I think that leads us, you know, very well into the fact that we're going to be talking about Revolutionary May Day this Sunday, which is a revolutionary holiday celebrated around the world by people who want to fight for a different future. All right, listen, well, here's one of the things that we wanted, I wanted to talk to you about. I know you've spoken to some of this, but there's a, you know, there's a big thing that's going, you know, people got to understand what the hell is happening in, in, in this country, in this world, and what role we actually have to have as people who, who, do, who begin to understand or who do understand it deeply but need to spread this out. People need to be getting, getting real with what's, what's happening here. There's a lot at stake in the world today, and we're going we're gonna, to, you know, we got we got a lot to do about, you know, around that, right? But first... There's an important day coming up, and we've got to talk about this some more, about May 1st, May Day, the International Revolutionary Day. And I want to talk about that in, the, in the, sort of both in the, in the immediate, but also in the difference it makes around the world for that to actually, for people to be dealing with that, to thinking about that, to taking that out. What does this day mean, and what are the plans for the RevComps? Yeah, right. So, you know, exactly. This is a day that's, you know, celebrated around the world as a day to struggle for a different future and against this system of capitalism and imperialism. And this Sunday, we're going to be marching and we're going to be marching under the slogan, 
No U.S. NATO war with Russia. No World War III. It's this system, not humanity, that needs to become extinct. We don't accept their future. It's time to get organized for a real revolution. This is a day where people are going to have the opportunity to step out and be, and be part of a force that is representing a different future beyond all of this oppression and madness, beyond a system that where gangsters like the U.S., NATO, and Russia compete over turf on a world scale, destroying lives and threatening the future of humanity, a time where people can come out and get out of the living for self and living for no, nothing in a future, in a system that has, has no future for humanity, a time where people can come out and show that there is hope, hope in struggling for a different future, not in accepting their future that they are imposing on us. So, again, I'm, you know, this is a day that's very fitting that it comes right after the anniversary of the L.A. Rebellion, you know, and, and looking back at the 30 years of, since then and what has not changed, what has not been able to be ended under this system and what future we're going to be forced to accept if we don't get rid of this system. So this is going to be a very important day for people to come out. It's also going to be the first time that there's going to be a gathering of people who are coming out and are not siding with the U.S. and NATO in this conflict in Ukraine, not pretending like Russia is any good actor either, but is calling out both of these gangsters as illegitimate thugs fighting over turf in a bloodthirsty system that needs to be gotten rid of. This is going to be the first outpouring of people saying no to all of that and acting in the interest of humanity to stop both sides from being able to continue their their you know proxy war that's going on right now in Russia, which threatens to escalate into a shooting war. Let's let's talk continue a little bit more on this, you know, because we're talking about this, and and I think people would like to hear some of the stuff about some very specific themes that are being made called for for uh, Revolutionary May first. It's like you know when you think about this, what what is going on in the world? What are people confronted with? But how do we actually step? towards that? How do we step to that, you know, in terms of fighting it back, in terms of, you know, all the kinds of things that are needed by people all over the world, and we're sitting in one of the most horrendous places in the, in the world, and it, what we need to do to actually stand up around in relation to this, when we, when we know what's going on, let's talk about that. Great existential uh, threats to humanity and all this, all the life on the earth, let's talk about all of that stuff. Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I do, do have to say, you know, I hope your listeners really uh, were taking in that, that uh, segment you just played, the interview uh, with Raymond Lotta and Andy Z, because there is a lot of, you know, idiocy going around in this country, especially um, when egging on the U.S. to intervene more fully in, in Ukraine and ignoring the actual history of the U.S., what it has done around the world in terms of being number one at war crimes, invasions, destruction, death from above, the only country to use nuclear weapons, heading up a military alliance, which is what NATO is, that has been expanding eastward towards Russia for decades and, and you know, has been an instrument for the U.S. to carry out bombings in countries like Libya and helping with its invasion of Afghanistan. This is something that's extremely uh, dangerous to be egging on the U.S. and NATO to get further involved. And in this country, especially but in all these countries where NATO is present and in Russia, where some people have been acting to oppose their government's invasion of Ukraine. But in this country and in the NATO countries, there needs to be people who are also standing up and saying no to that. And this is this is what we can do right now to stop.
stop this from escalating and threatening the future of humanity. And people need to act, not just be spectators in this conflict or cheerleaders for one or another of these gangsters, but actually step up and act. The people need to take to the streets starting this Sunday, May Day, coming out under these slogans to say no U.S. NATO war with Russia, no World War III. Because, you know, look, it's true. It, 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 it's devastating to think about a nuclear war. You could wake up the next day and whole parts of the planet could be, uh, you know, in rubble. And the environment could be further despoiled by all the nuclear fallout that results from the use of even tactical nuclear weapons that they're openly talking about using now. And the U.S., you know, Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, just, you know, said the quiet part out loud, which is that the U.S.'s objectives in this war is to weaken Russia as much as possible by dragging out the war and to hell with how many Ukrainians have to die fighting, fighting it. This is what's going on. This is what this government is doing, and the people in this country need to act, okay, um, to stop this from escalating further into a potential humanity-ending con- global world war conflict using nuclear weapons. And people need to act because the gangsters who are at each other like this run a gangster system, and they can't stop themselves if they wanted to. Their system of capitalism, imperialism, requires this kind of rivalry and competition over markets and control of geopolitical territory. And this rivalry is, you know, Putin, no less or more than Biden, is driven by the logic of this system. And only the people acting can actually stop this from going in a very devastating direction. But more than that, can actually bring about something positive, something emancipating, if we act to get rid of this system, which is what Mayday is about or getting organized for. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's really important around all this stuff. It's, it's sort of like when we're talking about this, you know, talking about the, the you know, you talk about the, what, what is actually happening, what's being done, and it's, there's a whole question here of people need to understand what is, what is happening. What's, you know, we're, we're living at a time when all the crimes and contradictions of the system seem to be growing more and more acute. You know, you think about this. It's like 30 years after LA, the L.A. Rebellion, over the beating of Rodney King, police murders and repression continue, and they don't just continue. It's not like you just say, oh, yeah, well, and too many people may be thinking this. Yeah, well, you know, it's happening again. Yeah, tell me something new, you know. Actually, when you look at this, what's happening with this, the the, the rapid and deep, you know, play down that, that, that the police are actually pulling on the people and, and, and people who are standing up, they're really working to, they're trying to figure out how do they deal with this. And then some are just like trying to figure out how the hell do they stay alive, you know, and it's really, it's. I think it's really important for people to understand this again. And you just announced that, that the Supreme Court is moving um, to end the right to abortion. There are new horrors facing immigrants all over the place, and the threat of fascism gathers and aims to basically to seize the main machinery of repression. Some people look at this and think it's a, it's all very cool, you know. And I, but I want you to know, or it's or we can deal with it. But I want you to actually talk to people about what needs to happen here. Let's talk about that. What's the problem and what's the solution? Yeah, well, as we've you know, kind of hinted at already, you know, the, the, the fundamental problem is that there's a system in place. You know, again, when it comes to the way in which they're posturing and, and threatening World War III, they're driven by the logic of a system. When it comes to the fact that their police cannot stop murdering, brutalizing, and massively incarcerating black people and other people of color. When it comes to the way people are driven all around the world, 
to migrate and to, to, to find refuge and, and to try to seek out a way to live. All right, we seem to have lost something. But uh, it is just, this is the kind of stuff that we need to be chewing on. This is the kind of stuff that we need to be thinking about. This is the kind of stuff we need to be talking with each other about. And this is the kind of stuff that we need to be figuring out how are we going to move on stuff. You know, this is a, this is a situation that does not allow, it does not allow for, you know, a lot of people to sit back and say, well, you know, it's not a, you know, look, this situation, it's not sort of, it's nothing that you can just sit back and say, yeah, well, maybe it's true, maybe it isn't. There's one of these, other, one, or one, one or another thing happening. You need to be thinking about it now, sisters and brothers. You need to be thinking about what the hell is happening. You know, and uh, it's not, it's not easy to, uh, to, to sit down and say, okay, this is what's happening. I know what's happening. And now I got to do something. It's not easy in the beginning. Sometimes for some of us, it's really easy. When you see the horrors that this system has brought down on people here, people all over the world. And that isn't, that isn't just some kind of like hype talk. When you look at what, if you've ever been in any place around the world, especially in what they used to call the third world, you know, when you look at what's happening to people all over the world, what's happening to the planet, what's happening to women, what's happening to people, you know, this is the, we cannot allow this to just continue. You know, we cannot allow this to continue without, you know, <laughs> We need we need to basically step up and figure out what the hell is going on. And one of those, what the hell is going on, is are we ready to go back to work? <laughs> All right. So I'm trying to figure out where we were on this at this point. You still uh, hello? <laughs> Am I back? Yes, you're yeah. back. Um, did you have? Were you in the middle of something before this went down? Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure where I got cut off. <laughs> um, sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, call a drop, but uh, but yeah, just to to to, to just to conclude on on that real quickly in terms of like you know there's a system that's underneath all of this, but you know as much as that is a horror, there's also like an opportunity we have right now, you know because you know some of what we we've been talking about the way the way things are splitting apart and and it's not just continuing to go on. But actually, things are taking a leap. They're fighting viciously at the top of this country, the Democrats and Republicans, over what future is going to be imposed on humanity, and none of them are any good. The Republican fascists want to restore America's genocidal racism and female enslaving patriarchy and uh, with a xenophobic nationalism, and the Democrats are fighting to restore people's faith in this tired old BS about liberty and justice for all that covers over the system's oppression and exploitation. But the, the, this actually gives us a chance. The way that they're fighting over what future gives us a chance to get people ready to get rid of this system and make a future that is worth living in. And that's what the Revcoms are going to be doing this Sunday when we come together in March, you know, to say we don't accept their future. We're getting organized for a real revolution now. So this is something I just wanted to conclude in, with in terms of, like, you know, there's all this horrible stuff 30 years later, you know, but this this shows and proves once again that we cannot actually end this fundamentally, get a better future unless we end this system. And we have to act now because the time is ours to waste if we don't seize it now. So this Sunday, be in the streets if you're near L.A. or near New York City. Come down to the city and march with the Red All right, Noche, I have one, one uh, basically one question, maybe two but I think they actually do fit along this, and I think it'd be important to speak to this before we move on to anything else. But, you know, B.A., Bob Avakian, has been writing and speaking about all this. And what 
tell people some of the what are the, some of the key works that people should be checking out if they want to understand all this and change the world, and if they want to you know see what Avakian is all about, why it's so important that people know about this. Yeah, well, I want people to know that you know every Thursday at five p.m. Um, on YouTube at the the Revcoms, um, the Revolution Nothing Less show features a lot of the works of Bob Avakian in an ongoing way, current and and things that are are relevant. Um, and so I, I really encourage people to, to watch that. And then on revcom.us, I really encourage people, look at this new article, these two new articles on Ukraine. World War Three is the real danger, not a repeat of World War Two, and the dangerous idiocy in response to that. You know, these are two pieces from, from Bob Abakian and taking on a lot of the misconceptions, the lies, and analyzing what's really going on in this rivalry between two imperialists. And... Especially, also, there's a major work, Something Terrible or Something Truly Emancipating, which more deeply analyzes the, the divisions in this country, the looming, you know, the, the looming possibility of civil war and how we can go to work on the revolution that is actually needed and wrench a revolution out of this terrible situation so that we can, you know, get something truly emancipating. But as you're doing all of that, again, come and act together with people on May 1st. March under the slogans, no U.S. NATO war with Russia, no World War III. This system, not humanity, needs to become extinct. We don't accept their future. It's time to get organized for a real revolution. All right. Noche Diaz, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Michael, sorry about the technical problem. That's all right. We're going to, come, we're going to have you back. <laughs> so don't worry about it. Okay. okay. <laughs> on and on and on. All right. We're going to fight this out. All right. This, is, this, this needs people to be standing up and not laying down, not walking away. This is, needs people like you and many millions of other people to stand up and deal with ha- deal out what has to be dealt out. You know, you know, just basically what is what the hell is taking, what's going on, and what are we going to do about it? How are we going to change the world, not just let it sit there and rot in the hands of the imperialists? Right? So we're going to take a quick break and be right back. take Berlin. All right. First we take Manhattan, then we take Berlin, and then we take the world. Okay. So people don't have to live in all the horror that they're forced to live in just because of who they are, what they are, where they are. You know, this is something that we have to really, sisters and brothers, we really got to take this stuff serious here. All right. And this is the Michael Slate Show, and we've been talking with Noche Diaz, national spokesperson for the Revolution Club. Last weekend, I saw a remarkable play in downtown Los Angeles. And my friend Henry was there. Uh, he looked me to see it. It was something that got us, had us both talking for quite a while after that. It's a remarkable play, and it's in downtown Los Angeles, and it's at the Hero Theater. The play is tea, T-E-A, like the beverage. And here to talk about uh, talk about it are the uh, playwright, Valina. It's Valina Hasu. Houston. 
Hasu Houston. You got it. Okay. And Elisa Boca Negra. Yeah. Okay. I'm getting better. Okay. The artistic director of the uh, Hero Theater. Welcome both. Welcome to the show, both of you. Okay. Thank you. Sure. To be here. Sure. Well, great to have you here. So, Valina, let's talk about this. Let's start with you. Can you give us an idea of what the play is about? I mean, I think people really are going to get their, their minds going to be blown when they see it, but I want them to hear or get a taste of it now so they can actually see or get a sense of what this play is about. Sure. The play is about um, five Japanese women who come together after a friend of theirs has committed suicide. And it's post-World War II, and they've come from Japan. They were considered war brides. They got uh, married to Americans and came to the United States. And it's a tale, really, of immigration, of the power of friendship, of survival, and really of how to cope with grief also. You know, there's something, yes, it's, it's true, and, and at the same time, it's, it's just, you know, there was something that was really just striking to me when, when I saw it. It was very, very, very striking. And it was one of these plays where you, you know, you don't get up and walk away and say, oh, yeah, let's go get a beer, let's go, get, let's go do whatever, let's just, you know, but it's more... Th- more one of them that leaves you thinking, thinking hard and, and what's what, thinking about what the hell is happening in the world, all right? And when you think about that, yeah. the, the idea that, that what this play is about, um, you know, it's sort of, I don't know, it's sort of a, uh, well, just a, 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 let's move on. We can, we can deal with that as we get along. Uh, you know, maybe it gets, I don't know how we'll divide this up. You guys can fight with each other over who's going to answer this one, okay? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and I are good friends. We're really good friends. Okay, yeah. I'm, yeah. yeah, we can be good friends, too. And I, <laughs> um, <laughs> Basically, I think somebody called this play a powerful lyrical exploration of the immigrant experience. The approach is never didactic. It doesn't preach, but brings out the context of the characters' lives through their recollections and interactions. Who are the characters in the play? And I, I have to really, you know, jump to that. It was really, very good. It was a very, very good, uh, th- you know, basically comment on the nature of this. But let's talk about this. The sort of axial central figure is a woman named Himiko who um, married uh, a white American from rural Oklahoma, and she comes to the United States. And uh, I don't want to you know, give away what happens in the play, but she becomes the kind of central figure. And uh, as a spirit character, she draws the other four women to her house who've never been in the same house. They've never have been together before in one place. And the other women are Setsuko, who is married to an African-American, and uh, Teruko, who is married to a white Texas man, has a very happy marriage, and uh, Chizue, who is probably acculturated the most out of the group. She's a widow, and she's found a way to survive well in America. And then Asuko, who married a Japanese-American and has brought with her from Japan uh, rather arrogant and sometimes racist ideas about uh, other cultures in the United States and certainly about even her own peers. You know, one of the things I've been trying to think about, is, and, and I really wish we had more time to deal with, deal with this, but I do think that there's you know, there's some things that people need to know. They need to know them hard, and they need to know them fast. You have a situation in here where you have women are being called war brides, which uh, brings to mind the women taking as prizes of war in the case of Himiko, and, and maybe even uh, close to the truth, they're living, they're living in, this, in, this, in the U.S. 
You know, and you think about all this, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a disgusting kind of thing that's happening to people, and it's one that cannot be allowed to, to just sit there. And I thought that was one of the, part of the beauty and the power of, of this, of this, what, we, what you were doing, this play. It's, a, it's an amazing thing, but it also tells the truth in ways that you can't deny it, and it really kind of hits you hard. Yeah, I think that the term war brides itself is uh, rather um, negative because it was yeah. used as a stereotype both in Japan and the U.S. to, to uh, diminish the women who married Americans after the end of World War II. And I think that there are a lot of political reasons for that as well as a lot of racist reasons for that. And I, I think for the women, uh, their Japanese female immigrant experience in America was something that was really marginal to mainstream American life. Nobody thought about it, uh, including Asian Americans. Nobody cared about it. And so they carved a place for themselves as members of, you know, interracial, international unions. They carved a place for themselves in the American Midwest and uh, survived as, as, as women, as, as wives, as mothers, as, as Japanese immigrants. And so I wanted to explore uh, their perspective on life in America, a perspective that we don't often visit. And, uh, and I also feel that their perspective reflects the journeys of other immigrants who organically understand what it's like to be a stranger in a new land. And I also think a lot of other, you know, non-immigrants who understand what it's like to be a stranger in a new land, a new city, you know, a new school, a new personal relationship, whatever it is. I think that's how the play's roots uh, reach out to, you know, to embrace other people, too. Mm-hmm. Now, we're running up close on our, on our limit, but I want to have I want to make sure that we uh, that Elisa, we need to we're able to talk with you. And I particularly you know, a little bit more than talk with you about the look, the, the look of the play, because it was amazing. It was incredible. It was theater in the round. There's a cut. There's costume changes on stage. And sometimes the actors are practically in the audience. Lisa, how did you create all of that? I mean, I was I was just blown away by it. And I'd, I'd, I'd really like to hear how you created all that. Thank you so much for that. Well, I think the director um, assembled a design team. That was really top notch, and they really worked closely together to create the world that they wanted uh, the play to be in. There were some things that are a little bit more updated, right, for kind of a more modern audience. Um, and I think that what the director did was really to, she wanted to show what it was like almost to be losing your culture as you're in a new place. They're in America now. So there were certain um, liberties with the kimono and things like that that she was beginning to take. Um, and also with the set, what they wanted to create was obviously they wanted to bring the audience into the home. So the set is sort of almost see-through, right? It is see-through, really. It shows the frame of the house. And I think that's also symbolic of where these women are at. They're like a frame of themselves, right? Because they've just, they've suffered the blow of losing their friend. And also they're coming to terms with what their life has become, after pursuing, you know, after coming to the quote-unquote land of the free. You know, one of the things that I connected with this play the most was that my mom came from Puerto Rico and with her sisters, and they didn't know anyone. And like Valina was just saying, people can really relate to this story. They don't have to be from Japan. So I do think that design does take a prominent um, force in the play uh, because of the way that the director worked with these designers. It was certainly something I've never experienced before. You know, somebody pointed out that this would be something we might also want to get into for a minute before we leave. But uh, I was reading about, you know, basically, 
when you think about it, I was reading about this, uh, someone who was talking about the immigrant experience, and they made the point that we tend to focus on the act of coming to a new country. But one of the most gripping parts of this play was that actually it's showing why and how the women left Japan and, and its complex. It was, Japan was defeated, a defeated country, and, all the, was, uh, and that was the background you know, to a lot of what was going on. And, and, and but the women's reason for leaving covered a whole spectrum. And I'd like to talk to that a little bit. It wasn't just people came up as war brides and they did this and they did that. But basically, let's talk about that. What was, what was that like? Uh, you know, I, for me in my writing, I feel that often <laughs> the story of the event, and then it's like somebody did this, and, and then we walk away. But when somebody does something, there's a, this whole kind of domino effect on people's lives, and that's what fascinated me with these Japanese women. And, of course, it's part of my family. I actually wrote the play back in uh, the early 80s, and it's been produced continually since then. So it's not a new play uh, in the sense that I didn't write it this year, <laughs> but uh, because, and I also did 48 interviews to explore the lives of all of these Japanese immigrants living in the state of Kansas. So, in a in a very natural way, I became I became interested in their lives as they were living them, how they were surviving, and uh, and part of that was this history of how they met their husbands in various situations, and I think in doing that, it also helped to um, break down the the ugliness of the stereotypes. All right. Anything else that either one of you would want to offer right now? Because we've got about a minute. <laughs> two minutes. <laughs> no, we have about two minutes. Well, I, I do want to add that, you know, one of the things that really um, makes me feel good about the play is that it brings in uh, d producers, directors, and, and Asian-American uh, and, and Asian actresses who can find a way to do the meaningful theater that's so important to, to what we do, and we don't often get that chance in the mainstream theater. Absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. All right, Elisa, Valina, thank you very much for the play and for the conversation. And keep up the good work. And when you want to talk again, just give me a call and you're there, all right? Thank you. Okay. Thank you okay. for being so all thoughtful right. with your comments and so kind. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, and I'll talk to you again soon, I hope. So that's it. Uh, now, I want to think this is the Michael Slate Show, and we've been talking with Valina Hasu Houston and uh, Elisa Boca Negra, uh, about the play T. That brings us to the end of another show. And I want to thank my assistant producer, Henry Carson, my engineer, Wendell, and all of you for tuning in. And if you want to write to me, you can at mslate at themichaelslateshow.com. Once again, that's mslate at themichaelslateshow.com. Well, I really gave them all a treat When he did that hand jive with his feet 